Theodore Gilmore Bilbo was an American politician who twice served as governor of Mississippi, once in 1916 for four years, and then from 1928 to 1932. Later, he was elected a U.S. senator in 1935, was re-elected twice more, but died early in his third term in 1947. He was 69, he was a Democrat, an outspoken white supremacist, and a strong supporter of FDR's Progressive New Deal. We asked Dr. Chester Bo Morgan, a retired professor of history at the University of Southern Mississippi, to give us some background on Theodore Bilbo and his impact on politics in the FDR era. Professor Morgan is the author of Redneck Liberal, Theodore G. Bilbo on the New Deal. Chester M. Bo Morgan, professor at uh, University of Southern Mississippi. Before we get started on talking about Theodore Bilbo, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, well, um, first of all, I'm retired from the classroom uh, two years ago, so so I'm not active. I'm emeritus faculty. Um, but I was, I'm a Hattiesburg native, which is where the University of Southern Mississippi is. Um, product of the public schools of Hattiesburg, uh, have two degrees from Southern Miss, um, got a PhD, what was then Memphis State University, and then came back to to Southern Miss to direct the oral history program and, and teach history in uh, 1982, and left the university in 89, uh, it's a long story. It was amicable parting, but I, I was an administrator at, at a local uh, day school, knowing I'd have to start over to get back in history. And I ended up taking a one-year appointment at the University of Kentucky in 91. And they kept me a second year and a third year. Actually, that's where I earned my spurs because I was kind of a homeboy here. Um, but they were never going to have a tenure track in my field. So uh, Delta State University, which is in North Mississippi, came calling in uh, 1994, and I spent 15 years there and then came back to Southern Miss in 2008 to write the centennial history of the university. And um, the the president at that time was an old friend that I had grown up with, uh, Martha Saunders, and she arranged to keep me. And so I continued to uh, teach at Southern Miss from 2008 till. 2019 when I retired. That's probably more than you wanted to know, but... No, thanks. 1985 is the date on this book that got our attention, Redneck Liberal, Theodore G. Bilbo and the New Deal. Why did you write it? Well, um, when I I started the PhD program at what's now the University of Memphis, I already knew what I wanted to write on. And Bilbo's papers, a huge collection, a million and a half pieces, uh, were at the, the the archives at Southern Miss, and nobody had ever there. Wigfall Green, who taught English at Ole Miss, uh, published a biography of Bilbo in 1963, but he didn't have access to the papers, so nobody had really written about him. Here, here's the dominant figure. I mean, literally the dominant figure of the first half of the 20th century in Mississippi politics. And nobody had ever written about him except for for Green, 
and certainly nobody had written about him with access to the papers. So, uh, I, so it was it was basically my dissertation, uh, and then LSU Press published it as Redneck Liberal, it revised considerably. But uh, that, that that's that's how I came to write it. I, I tell I've been through nine hundred boxes of Bilbo papers. I used to tell people that I've enjoyed about as much Bilbo as I can stand. Theodore Gilmore, Bilbo, was what was he like? Well, uh, he's complex. He's most noted as the Archangel of White Supremacy, a, a, a title which he richly deserved. But what fascinated me about him was that until World War II, he probably more than any other politician in Mississippi shunned the race issue as a as a political issue, not because he was in any, by any means enlightened. He just considered it a closed subject that after disfranchisement with the 1890 Constitution, uh, that, 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 that it, was, it was not an issue. And, and he, he, he was uh, the darling of the rednecks, the poor whites, against uh, the planters uh, and business elements, corporations, sawmills, railroad companies. Um, and he always considered class as the predominant issue. Um, but World War II changed everything because by then, uh, white supremacy and segregation were under, uh, were really under attack. And once he embraced that race issue, he brought the same kind of rhetorical savagery <laughs> to it that he did with uh, with class issues, and so he's known to most people as simply a racial bigot. Uh, but he was he was a uh, in in the in the terms of the early 20th century, he was a real progressive, uh, particularly as it related to education. But but really, uh, uh, all progressive issues he supported uh, charity institutions. Uh, Regulation and taxing of corporations. Uh, so, let me. Uh, this may be odd uh, to do this, but let me jump to the end of his life. We'll come back and go over things. But he had been elected to the United States Senate, if I calculate right, three times. Yeah, uh, correct. And this was uh, in nineteen thirty-five through the early part of 1947, how did his life end and why was it so controversial at the last few months in the Senate? Well, he, uh, he was first elected in 19, to the Senate in 1934, re-elected in 1940, and re-elected in the midst of controversy in 1946. The controversy swirled around two issues. One is his, his racial bigotry. I mean, he had he had uh, basically been accused of intimidating potential black voters in that in that campaign in 1946. But he also was accused of taking kickbacks on war contracts. Um, and so there was a motion to to bar him from his seat after he was elected. Uh, then it was discovered that he had terminal cancer, ironically cancer of the mouth. 
Uh, and so a deal was worked out by uh, his friends in the Senate where basically he was not seated, but he was at the, he would continue to draw his pay and basically was allowed to go home to Pearl River County and die, which he did in 1947. There's so many different moments that I want to ask you about, including um, the fact that in 1930, when he was governor, that he was responsible for the first sales tax in the United States? Well, uh, that's not exactly right. He, <laughs> of course, the the Depression was had had begun. He was elected governor in, uh, in 1927, took office in 1928. And of course, the stock market crashed in 29. Uh, the The state was uh, heavily in debt, and uh, the, the um, and his proposal was not to increase the property tax, the ad valorem tax on, on property, because so many Mississippians were farmers. Um, and he advocated a sales tax, a retail sales tax. And it, it, it wasn't – well, I'm getting ahead of the game here. Well, um, the leg- his, this was his second administration as governor. He was first elected in 1915 served during World War I, 1916 and 1920. Arguably the most productive and progressive session of the legislature in its history up to that time in 1916. Uh, he he ran again for governor. Governors could not succeed themselves until the 1990s, so he couldn't run for re-election. But in 1923, after sitting out for a term, he ran again and was defeated. And then in 1927, he ran successfully uh but the second term was the exact opposite of the first it was totally barren primarily because of opposition in the legislature particularly in the lower house which was dominated by what became known as the big four um tom bailey who was speaker of the house from meridian uh walter sillers who later became quite famous as speaker of the house uh, but at that time, he was chairman of a major committee, Lawrence Kennedy from Natchez, and Joe George, the son of the architect of disfranchisement, Jay-Z George, uh, from Carrollton. And they blocked him at every turn. And what's ironic is one of the things they blocked, along with his proposal for a, a printing, a state printing plant to print textbooks and bypass what he called the, the textbook monopoly, um, he, he he also proposed the retail sales tax. The big four blocked it in the House. And then in 1932, Mike Connor, who succeeded Bilbo uh, from the same county my mother was born in, Covington County, uh, he was able to secure a sales a retail sales tax over great opposition. And ironically, it was the big four who paved the way. They were still in the legislature. And so they they granted Connor what they had denied Bilbo. A lot of, well, his opponents would oppose anything he proposed simply because he proposed it. That's the way factional politics worked in general, but it, it was certainly heightened uh, under Bilbo and his, and his predecessor as the, the darling of, uh, the poor whites, 
James K. Vardaman. Let me. What, can I do this? Can I just kind of sketch Bobo's career? You can, but before you do that, I want to ask you to kind of give us. Uh, you know, I know he was five two, but give us a, a picture of him and what he would be like if you were around him. Well, he was even his bitterest enemies, and I, I hope we'll have time to talk about. The, the primary one, who is Fred Sullins, the editor of the Jackson Daily News, uh, he, even his enemies found him gregarious. He was likable, but he was somebody once said that he, he was he was notoriously immoral. He he was a there's no doubt he was a womanizer, for lack of a better term. Um, and he, he his whole his whole career was was ridden with scandal. And, and and usually he was able to turn it to his advantage. Um, but somebody once said you wouldn't want your yard dog to associate with Bilbo, but he's one of the best men you can have in public office. <laughs> so so he he was he was likable, um, but not very wholesome. But he was a political genius in his context. Had he- Unlike Huey Long, he never had national aspirations. He wanted to dominate Mississippi politics, which he did. Had he ever married? Yes. Oh, don't get me off into that. Um, he was. He was. His uh, his lifespan almost perfectly parallels a distinctive era in Southern history. He was born in 1877, the year that most historians mark the end of Reconstruction, and he died in 1947, the year before. Democratic Party adopted a civil rights plank in its national platform. Um, and he he really, he, he didn't receive any formal schooling uh, until he was 15 years old when he, he entered the third grade uh, at uh, Poplarville School, public school. He was, he, his family was from Juniper Grove, a little hamlet uh, not far from Poplarville in Pearl River County, south, the the near the uh, border of Louisiana, and not too far from New Orleans. Um, uh, I, I, I lost my train of thought. Where, uh, well, let, let, let me jump. I mean, th- that's good background, and I, I want to just tell you the reason why I got interested in Theodore Bilbo was because I had uh, read the book. Uh, Inside USA by John Gunther. And when he talks, he went to all 48 states. I did a podcast uh, about him. And when he got to Mississippi, Bilbo was very interesting to him. Uh, And when you look at his background and the things that he said, uh, it just, I wanted to talk with somebody that could put him into context back then with what we've heard in the last several years in national politics and see if there's any comparison. But let me just throw in a quote and have you pick up from there. This is He was very young. It was 1919. He said, this is a white man's country with a white man's civilization and any dream on the part of the Negro race to share social and political equality will be shattered in the end. He said stuff like that often. What, what was he – why did he feel this way or could you tell? Well, he, he – that that was unfortunately a, a common sentiment among among white Mississippians in his generation. So so uh, the fact that he 
embrace white supremacy is, is really not all that surprising. Uh, the, what, what he did with it, though, once he embraced the race issue as a political uh, weapon, was he, he brought to that fight the same rhetorical, as I said, rhetorical savagery that he did uh, when he was fighting corporations and planters. Uh, so he became, I mean, he, 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 he said things in, in graphic terms. Um, again, whether he was talking about uh, uh, corporate wealth or, or the race issue. The, the, and so he drew, he drew attention. About 25 years later, when he was still in politics and in the United States Senate, uh, and we're in the middle of World War II, he said, when this war is over and more than two million Negro soldiers whose minds have been filled and poisoned with political and social equality stuff return and hell breaks loose all over the country, I think I'll get more help in settling the Negroes in Africa. What was that story? Um, he got connected with a splinter group out from Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association, which was a black nationalist and to some extent a back to Africa uh, organization. Uh, I, are you familiar at all with Garvey? Sure. Yeah. Um, the, the splinter group was the peace movement uh, in Ethiopia. Uh, headed by a, uh, a Chicago black woman named Mitty Maud Lena Gordon. Uh, and she wanted somebody in Congress to sponsor uh, a bill to divert relief funds. This is still during the Depression. Uh, uh, this, is, this is around, 19, around 1938 when she made contact with Bilbo. Uh, she wanted somebody to sponsor a bill to divert relief funds from uh, to uh, to finance any black Americans who wanted to repatriate to Liberia. And she got connected with Bilbo through a white supremacist white supremacist in Richmond named Ernest Severe Cox, and he was reluctant at first. Um, but he agreed to sponsor it. He introduced it in 1939. Uh, and when the war came, he abandoned it, much to the dismay of Gordon. Um, but he, but after, after the war, he, re, he revived it and reintroduced it. And, and of course, by that time it was, it was, it, it was toxic and so it never went anywhere. But he became associated with the idea of voluntary repatriation of Americans, American blacks to to Africa. He, he actually, the bill, the original bill would have uh, called on the State Department to negotiate with England and France to cede some of their African colony, colonial territory to Liberia uh, to accommodate more immigrants today the whitest country uh, whitest uh, state in the union is vermont where it's almost i don't know 95 96 percent white and the state with the most african-americans is mississippi um 
paint. I mean, you know, when you look around the United States and try to figure out why people feel the way they do, you have been in Mississippi, you know, enormous amount of your life. What is life like there today versus what it was like during Bilbo's time for the African-American? Oh, I, look, just in my lifetime, the, the, the change outwardly, at least, is dramatic. I, I mean, uh, Bilbo could say things in the 1930s that are unthinkable today. Um, now, there, I, I, no doubt there's still racial tension, but nothing like there was uh, in my childhood and, and early adulthood. Uh, but, I mean, it's not heaven on earth, but it's certainly vastly different uh, from what it was in Bilbo's day and even in uh, even in the 1950s and early 1960s. The odd thing is that Abraham Lincoln said some of the same things that Bilbo said. For instance, a quote from 47, the year that he died, I'm honestly against the social intermingling of Negroes and whites but I hold nothing personal against the Negroes as a race. This almost parallels what Abraham Lincoln said at Charleston during the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Uh, yeah, and Lincoln, Lincoln always, at least until, I mean, I'm not a Lincoln scholar by any stretch, but but he always, until very late, if, if even then, always coupled uh, emancipation with colonization. Yeah. That is, relocating uh ex-slaves outside the boundaries of the United States. Another story that I'd like to have you talk about is the 1928 presidential campaign and how Bilbo backed uh, Al Smith, the the wet Catholic urban, as they called him, uh, for president. And what, why did, and, and the whole story about what he said about Herbert Hoover. Well, he, he, yeah, he, he uh, only South Carolina cast fewer Republican votes in 1928 than did Mississippi. And that's largely because Bilbo, um, who was governor at the time, uh, held firm. I mean, he was a, he was a loyal Democrat until very, very le- well, even even to his death. He, 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 he was he always associated white supremacy with the Democratic Party. Well, obviously, World War II changed that dramatically, um, uh, but but yeah, he he backed Smith. In fact, he he was the featured speaker in Birmingham uh, at the closing uh, Smith rally in, in Alabama, uh, campaigning for for. He was accused of uh, wanting to turn the the country over to the Pope because Smith was a Catholic, uh, but he he and his. his uh, his theme in that campaign was if America stood for anything, it was for for religious tolerance. <laughs> uh, but it was I mean, very few things he did were not related to political uh, interests. How, su- uh, how successful was he in spreading the rumor that Herbert Hoover uh, had socialized with a black woman? Yeah, that was the, the rumor was that Hoover had danced with. Uh, Republican committee woman Mary Booz from from the Delta at a social function in in the White House. But again, he he was using that to undermine the, the possibility of Hoover getting votes in in Mississippi. What impact? Was, 
what, but, but let me say this. I, th- this is the theme of the book, um, that until World War II, he, now he, he, he made statements about race, as, as did all Southern politicians. But, but he shunned it as a, as a political issue. Uh, in fact, it was used against him. Until, let me give you an example. As late as 1940, he had helped elect Paul Johnson Sr., now not the, not, not the son, Paul Johnson Jr., uh, who was governor during the Civil Rights era, but his father, Paul Johnson Sr. Uh, he was urging, in 1940, during the legislative session, he was urging Johnson to have the poll tax repealed because it, because it prevented a lot of his constituency from being able to vote. Uh, now, he was vehemently opposed to any federal mandate to end the poll tax, uh, but but he certainly wanted it. I mean, that's that's the complexity of of Mississippi politics. Because during his lifetime, Leo Key, who was a noted uh, political scientist at Vanderbilt, wrote a book in 1949 called uh, uh, "Southern Politics in State and Nation," and he went state by state, and his his comment on Mississippi politics was that it's a, a battle between the planters, the Delta planters, and the rednecks. And Bilbo was definitely the, the champion of the redneck faction. Uh, another thing that I'm, I know you know about is that <clears throat> one of uh, liberal folks' heroes in history is a guy named Hugo Black, who was 34 years on the Supreme Court, uh, also was in the Senate for 10 years. And when people look back on his name and his time, they consider him to be a liberal hero. When they look back on Bilbo's time, I'd be interested in your take because they were both members of the Ku Klux Klan back in those days. What was it? They have a relationship at all in the Senate? And, and uh, why, uh, why is one a hero and the other isn't? Well, because one... <laughs> One died uh, uh, in the the early days of America's move toward racial equality, Bilbo, and the other lived on. I I wouldn't begin to suggest how Bilbo would have responded to events after his death, uh, except to say that he would have probably tried to land on his political feet. Um, But but as a matter of fact, when, when Black was nominated... Uh, for the Supreme Court, he was in the Senate, uh, and he and Bilbo, as far as I know, were not were not close. Uh, but he stood firmly in favor uh, of of Black's nomination when lots of Mississippi conservatives opposed it. He also supported well, he su- he supported the the New Deal down the line. Uh, he even the the most controversial issue in the, uh, uh, Roosevelt's second term, obviously, was the court packing scheme, which is interesting because it's now an issue again. Um, but Bilbo supported the court packing scheme. I mean, to the very to the bitter end. So, when you <clears throat> wrote this book in 1985, and you spent all that time with a million and a half pages of information on him. How did you? How did your mood change about him as you went through your research? 
Well, I, I knew a little bit about him before I got into the papers, but he's, he's the, the best word to describe him is complex. Uh, and he, he was he was a true and I think sincere uh, champion of the interest of poor whites uh, and an enemy of corporate wealth, uh, planters and their interests. Um, but he was also a, a, an ardent white supremacist. Uh, and as long as those two didn't conflict, uh, he didn't feel compelled to drag the race the race issue into politics. Now that changed, beginning with the, the fight over the Fair Employment Practices Committee uh, in 1941, and by the end of the war, uh, he, he had basically shifted from um, from liberal New Dealer to race, racial bigot. Why did he call himself the man? That I don't know. I don't know the origin of that. But, yeah, he referred to himself in the third person as the man, Bilbo. If you bring, uh, he, he, go ahead. You know, if you bring him up in the state today, does anybody know who he is? Uh, uh, I don't know. Probably not a lot. Uh, but if they do know about him, it, it pertains to the last few years of his life, uh, and, and, and it's associated with his racial bigotry. Uh, few people know uh, about his early career progressivism. Now, that's why the, the, the title is, is mine, that is, Redneck Liberal, because I think that captures what I was trying to say. He, he, he was a loyal New Dealer, uh, but... But but the rise of civil rights during World War II made it very difficult for him to continue to do that. Let me uh, and here. Well, you don't want to hear my philosophical musings, but history, when done properly, is about irony and tragedy, because the human condition is ironic and tragic. Uh, that is, as somebody said, uh, good and evil don't live in separate compartments. Um, and uh, the, the distinctions between melodrama and tragedy. History is about history ought to be about tragedy. Increasingly, it's becoming melodramatic. When the, the good guys are all good, the bad guys are all bad, and the victims are all helpless. The problem with that is it doesn't resonate uh, with with experience. Uh, a, a, a noted literary critic whom I encountered. Uh, in a in a seminar, Robert Howman said in in melodrama we put the erring man in his place. That is, he gets what he deserves. In tragedy, we put ourselves in the erring man's place. And so uh, he's he's a he's an ironic and in a lot of ways tragic figure. How would you describe Mississippi politically today? Oh, um, like the rest of the country, polarized, but with a distinct Republican majority. And how has it changed in your lifetime? Specifically, not just uh, better, but I mean, what is, 
How, how have you seen change, hist- you know, put it in context of history? Well, I think most white Mississippians are have accepted, um, at least in, at least the notion uh, of black e- of black equality in terms of the right to vote and the right to access to public accommodations, uh, everything that the early civil rights movement uh, advocated. I mean, I think most, and I, you know, obviously there there are exceptions, but there are exceptions throughout the country. Um, but I don't think today Mississippi is any more racist than the rest of the country, except for the fact of the, the, the a higher, uh, a more mixed population than than many states. Because you um, spent your life as a professor, I need to ask you about Bilbo's attempt, number one, at moving several of the universities in Mississippi to Jackson from their towns like Hattiesburg and other places. Um, and the fact that he was excited about firing a hundred and seventy some professors at one time. What's that story about? Well, that uh, you know, I guess I'm somewhat biased on that on that issue. Here's here's the story. Uh, except for faculty positions, uh, university positions, staff, even presidents were political appointments. Uh, in, in, when, when Henry Whitfield was governor before Bilbo, with, uh, that is, in, around ni- the mid-1920s, Whitfield commissioned a blue-ribbon study headed by a man named Michael O'Shea from the University of Wisconsin, the granddaddy of progressive education. A thorough study, I mean, it's a tome, the report is a, is a huge book, um, uh, a blue-ribbon study of Mississippi education, where there was no kindergarten then, from first grade through through uh, college, and among the recommendations in that report was the consolidation of four-year institutions. And so, when Bilbo received it, by then he was governor. Whitfield was dead, um, and and Bilbo had been elected. He sent those recommendations, many of them, to the legislature, and one of them was to move everything. He was going to turn the Oxford campus into a normal college for North Mississippi as a mirror of what's now Southern Miss, which was, which was originally a normal college for South Mississippi. He was going to turn the Oxford physical plant into a, a normal college for North Mississippi, but move everything else. Uh, there was no med school then, but move the law school uh, and, and just the entire university apparatus of both, not just Ole Miss, but, but um, what was then Mississippi A&M, now Mississippi State, uh, moved everything to Jackson and created a greater university of Mississippi in Jackson. And, again, he was, he was following the, 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 the recommendations of a, of a Blue Ribbon Commission. Well, during the, during the legislative fight, the officials of the city of Oxford, Lafayette County, and the university chartered a train uh, invited the entire legislature to Oxford, wind them and dined them, uh, and Chairman Alfred Hume, I mean, uh, Chancellor Alfred Hume, made a speech that ended with, you may move the university, uh, you you may remove it from these hallowed hills of Lafayette County, but don't call it Ole Miss. And so the legislature went back and killed the bill. 
And so Bilbo, basically, this is my interpolation. He said, okay, I tried to do it the right way, but I know how to play politics, too. And so he he gained a majority of his appointees uh, on all the boards and was able to fire all the presidents, um, except the one at Delta State, which he didn't control. Yeah. And in, in the process, there, there were faculty firings along with staff. Um, although uh, there's, a, there's a master's thesis that was done years ago by a man named Hardy Graham, uh, on not, not the entire uh, process, but just as it applied to Ole Miss. And his conclusion was that in, in almost every instance, those who replaced the fired uh, officials were more qualified uh, than those they replaced. But it, 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 the accrediting agency, the Southern Association of Colleges and Universities, put all the schools on probation. Uh, until that was corrected, which which happened. I mean, the, the the process was reversed under his successor, Mike Connor. Got to ask you a couple of quick things and let you go. Um, he ran for the House and lost the primary in 1918, but um, supposedly supported it because – supposedly got defeated because he supported a program to dip cattle in insecticide – to kill the ticks, carrying uh, a bout of Texas fever, is that right. accurate? And that is that why he lost that primer? Well, that's always what he said. He, he said, "I was crucified on a cross of ticks." Obviously, that's an allusion to William Jennings Bryan's <laughs> "Crucified on a Cross of Gold" uh, in, in 1896. But, but yeah, that uh, uh, I mean, there, there there are a lot of apocryphal stories about that 1918 campaign. Uh, one one is that that Johnson uh, preceded all of his speeches by just simply ringing a cowbell. Paul, this is Paul Johnson Sr., who beat Bilbo in a race in a race for Congress from the Southern District of Mississippi. Uh, and Bilbo later it, it gave rise to that wonderful aphorism uh, of some of Bilbo's supporters: "I'm for Bilbo, but I'm again dipping." Uh, because it required they had to, South Mississippi was open range, and so to round up all, all your cattle every two weeks and drive them to a vat filled with arsenic solution was a was a real nuisance. I mean, there were there were murders and and dynamited dipping bats. Uh, it, it was almost a range war uh, because many of those counties had been put under quarantine uh, by federal authorities. Because of the infestation of Texas tick fever. When uh, Bilbo was in public life, uh, Mississippi was 20% urban. What is it now? Do you know? Yeah, I, I really don't. Uh, but it, it's 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 majority urban now, but I don't know how, how much. But going back to that 1918, right, I don't want to, you know, I'm probably talking, telling you more you want to know. But, but that's an interesting story, too. When Bill Lowe was elected governor in 1915, um, by the way, the, the, the editor I mentioned earlier, Fred Sullivan, suggested that after that, after Bill Lowe won the governorship, it was time to replace the eagle atop the Capitol Dome with a puking buzzard. 
and the, and the one on the state seal with a carrion crow. Uh, so we need to talk about Sullen sometime on a future podcast. He's 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 the most fascinating figure in that uh, of that era of Mississippi history. Uh, he was, like I said, editor of the evening paper in in Jackson, one of the two major newspapers in the state, the Jackson Daily News. Uh, but what had happened is Bilbo was proposing, and get this, a constitutional convention to replace the 1890 disfranchising constitution, not because he wanted to end disfranchisement, at least of black voters, uh, but because he wanted to, to take away the power from that combination that somebody somebody called uh, the, the Cotton Commerce Alliance, that is, the few business interests, which was mostly sawmill, co- sawmill and railroad companies, uh, and the planter class, who, who who dominated the legislature and dominated the state, the st- state power, and they weren't really. He didn't get his constitutional convention, but he got most of what he wanted piecemeal in that 1916 session. But the war changed everything. Uh, it split the progressive faction because Bilbo's mentor, James K. Vardaman, was one of six in the U.S. Senate to vote against the declaration of war. And a lot of that progressive faction followed uh, Vardaman, were opposed to the war. There were there were uh, uh, deaths in North Mississippi uh, ha- having to do with draft dodging. Uh, but Bilbo supported the war effort and Woodrow Wilson, and so the faction was divided. And in 1918, Pat Harrison... Uh, defeated Vardaman in his re-election bid to the Senate, and Bilbo, who was still still sitting governor, ran for Congress and was defeated by Paul Johnson, uh, and and that launched Pat Harrison's career. Byron Patton Harrison, who who basically wrote every New Deal tax bill, he was chairman chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, uh, and and one of one of the key. Uh, uh, players in, in, in the entire New Deal. Chester M. Bo Morgan, uh, anything you want to throw in here before we close it out? All right, let me bore you with one little taste of Bilbo. Just, <laughs> now, this is apocryphal. I, I ran into it from a, 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 an old Episcopal priest in North Mississippi named Charles Granville Hamilton. In 1919, Bilbo had just been defeated for Congress uh but he had gotten his his protege Lee Russell elected. Well, he was campaigning for his his lieutenant governor Lee Russell for governor in 1919. He's not running, I understand. And and Lee Russell's main opponent was a Delta planter and lawyer named Oscar Johnston, who later became prominent in the New Deal Agricultural Adjustment Administration, managed the cotton pool. Uh, but but this is a typical redneck versus Delta planter. And Bilbo supposedly said this, we're making a clean campaign based on issues, not on personalities. We are not going to discuss the personality of Oscar Johnson, but the issues. And they say Oscar Johnson drinks too much. That's too bad. If it's so, I don't know. But even if he does drink too much, that's no reason for not voting for him for governor. If he wants to drink, that's none of our business. They say he gambles a lot, betting as much as $1,000 a point on dice and cards. This may or may not be true, but even if it is, he can afford it with his money has nothing to do with the campaign. Don't vote against Johnson because he gambles. Vote on the issues. 
They tell it he runs around with all sorts of women, that he's a very immoral man. Now, these may be just political lies, but even if they are true, they have nothing to do with the, cam- <clears throat> with the campaign. This is going to be a clean campaign based on issues, not on personalities. I want to make sure everybody knows the name of the book is Redneck Liberal, Theodore G. Bilbo Correct. and the New Deal. And you're retired two years and still working on history? I am, and, and don't ask me when I signed the contract. It's been a long time. But I, I, the, I'm working on a, a, a synthesis that is a, not primary research, but taking uh, secondary material and weaving it into an interpretive narrative of Mississippi 1917 to 1941, basically between the wars, although the first three chapters cover World War One. Uh, but I, uh, World War II is a, needs an entire book to itself. Uh, but that's what I'm working on. Basically, I'm finished. I'm, I'm doing revisions at the moment. Well, Professor Moran, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. Uh, Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.